front of the official building here. It's a brand new one. I remember the old one. This is this brand new. There's a lot of construction going on around here too. You can probably hear the noise. So the official acronym for IARC is International Agency for Research on Cancer. It's part of the WHO, but it's not in the same city as the WHO at all, which has a history of its own. Um, but here it's not written in English, it's written in French, and it says Centre International de Recherche sur le Cancer, for which the acronym is CIRC, which is the same word they sort of use for circus also. I think there might be something to it. Episode 3. Risky Science. Act 1. Precaution. Life is risky. We've all found that out the hard way, one way or the other. As children, we fall. As adults, we also fall, usually with even graver consequences. Broken arms, twisted ankles, bruises. Some of us are even less fortunate. Retain serious injuries from car accidents or bicycle crashes. When you really think about all the potential causes for concern in your immediate environment, your own surroundings can quickly become the scene of a Final Destination movie. To some people, the fear of these risks can cause an anxiety disorder known as agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is a fear of being in situations where escape is difficult. You might experience helplessness, feel trapped, worry about being embarrassed, or you may be afraid of developing a panic attack. We can experience agoraphobia in a number of situations. In crowds, on subways, cars, airplanes, in large open spaces, bridges, parking lots, arenas, or in enclosed spaces like movie theaters, a doctor's office, elevators, or tunnels. People who experience agoraphobia will avoid situations that are difficult for them, or they'll enter a situation with a lot of distress. Maybe they'll be on guard, constantly looking for an escape path. This anxiety can also be temporary. In 2017, I was robbed in a major city in France. My phone got stolen. For a couple of weeks after this incident, I was afraid to go out, considering anyone who came my way in the streets a threat. In an effort to protect myself from future incidents such as this one, I overestimated the actual risk of being robbed, and I drove the people around me mad in the process. Life is not without risks, and as we realize that it isn't, we implement means to manage them. This is something we talked about last season with regards to harm reduction. Wearing a seatbelt in a car or a helmet during a motorcycle drive does not make the drive risk-free, but it reduces the risks. But that is not what this episode is about. In this episode, I'm looking at how risk is managed by policymakers and how understanding risk affects the way we decide to ban or restrict the use of a product. This might sound abstract, and it will be at first, so let's start at the beginning, with the principle that will come up a few times in this episode, the precautionary principle. What is the precautionary principle? Precautionary principle. Le principe de précaution. Principe de précaution. Principe de précaution. Principe de précaution. Del principio de précaution. The name precautionary principle comes from the German Vorsorgeprinzip and is a German social legal tradition related to environmental regulation. It was first used in the German clean air legislation in 1970 and has since become a legal doctrine in the European Union and many member states in Europe. On the website of the European Parliament, it is introduced as follows, quote, 
The precautionary principle enables decision makers to adopt precautionary measures when scientific evidence about an environmental or human health hazard is uncertain and the stakes are high. End of quote. Let's give an example. Let's say you, an ingenious inventor and entrepreneur, develop a machine that removes all dust from a house in a matter of seconds. Brilliant, right? No more need for vacuum cleaners, cleaning staff, nor will people breathe in an excess of dust in their own homes. However, your great invention has yet to pass the test of the precautionary principle, meaning you cannot prove yet that your machine does not cause unforeseen problems. That's why they are unforeseen. For instance, could it be that your machine releases a gas that makes people sick? Could it be that your machine makes a noise that will hurt people with sensitive ears? If you cannot answer those questions, you fail the precautionary test. So what do you do? You run safety tests. You test the air quality after the machine is used. You test the sound levels when the machine is running. It will take you a few months, but you return safe in the confidence your machine is safe to use. Have you now passed the precautionary test? Not necessarily. Precaution means that you have proven that no long-term effects are caused by your machine. Sure, your air quality might be safe in the immediate, but what happens when people use your machine for 10 years? Is it safe then? Now you can make some assumptions given the composition of your machine. But ultimately, the only good test would be to run a reliable test for 10 years. The problem is that this means that for 10 years your machine cannot be sold. The people who suffer from dust allergies won't be helped by your machine in the meantime and that you might not be able to have satisfied all the precautionary tests in the 10 years time anyway. Also, your patent might have run out, which means your investors might bail on you. That is why safety testing is expensive, yes, but it is also why safety testing is, in essence, a compromise. It's a compromise between the benefits of innovation and the need for necessary precaution. Just saying, apply the precautionary principle, sine fine, endlessly, doesn't constitute a way forward. It is, in fact, a dead end. My name is David Zarek. I'm originally a Canadian living in Belgium for the last 40 years. Uh, I'm a retired professor. I spend my most of my time now writing either as the risk monger or as the editor of the Firebreak. David Zarek is known as the risk monger. He's an expert in risk management and risk communication. So he looks at what is a risk. How is it popularly understood? And then what do we do with that information? Well, first of all, everybody is precautionary by nature. The minute a baby learns to walk, the hands come up in the air uh, because they're, they're aware that there is an uncertainty about to happen and they will fall. So it, it's, it's a good thing to, to have precaution in, you know, behind our decision process. Uh, but it's, it's not a risk management tool. It is an uncertainty management tool. When I'm uncertain, I take precaution. Uh, if the if I'm at the top of an icy staircase uh, and I think, oh dear, I might, you know, risk assessment, I might slip and fall down the stairs, uh, then I um, I will find either a way to make it safer, not safe, it's never going to be safe. Uh, stairs are big killers, by the way, uh, but make it safer by either holding onto the arm rail or finding another way to get down, and. I think that's an important point that we have to consider alternatives and that's risk management is about scenario building. Precaution is simply uh, in its worst form, uh, which is the form the European Commission now applies from the European Environment Agency, essentially what I call the David G 
definition of precaution. Uh, if you can't prove to me that it's safe, then we can't have this. It's the reversal of the burden of proof, but you can't prove something as being safe. The original form of precaution, um, which was uh, around the time of the Rio summit, the Brundtland definition, as it's called, is the triple negative. And, to, and this was when people were talking about climate change, but it wasn't yet clear and people weren't certain that climate change was happening. So the, the idea of the triple negative is um, that uh, if, you, uh, if you don't know uh, that something uh, with certainty is a harm, that is, that's one negative. That's not a reason, second negative, to not do something. Okay. And so the context there is that, um, you know, we take precaution on climate change because it's such a great risk that even if we're not certain about climate change, we should still act to do something. Well, I can take the same logic then and say under the precautionary principle, we must have GMOs. Because the idea of a major food crisis is so great of a risk. So even if we're not 100% certain about the safety of genetically modified food, uh, that is not a reason to not go forward with the technology. So that, I mean, as you said, there are different definitions of precaution and I could just, I could argue under precaution that we need GMOs. So, um, and, but unfortunately today, um, we don't really have leadership. Uh, and so if a politician is going to have to make a decision where he might or she might be wrong, um, that's, that's a, a bigger fear than actually making a good decision. So with precaution, you're never wrong. You're safe. And I, I think that's an important point. If you have a choice between making a decision where you're right or you could be wrong and your name could be put forever on a crisis, or you could just be safe, which is the more appealing um, approach? I use my umbrella as a good example. Today it's sunny outside, um, but uh, to get to my office, I brought an umbrella uh, in my bag. Was I, was I right to bring the umbrella? No. Beautiful sunny day. Was I wrong to bring the umbrella? No. So it's, it's not a question of right or wrong. It was a safe decision. And tomorrow I'll bring my umbrella in my bag again, even if the weather is, once again, calling for sun. With precaution, you're never wrong. So not being right is not the same as being wrong. That's a precautionary logic. And as a for... Politicians, it's a very attractive thing to never be wrong. Just really, really not right. And, and of course, there are consequences. People suffer. People suffer when you don't act. Um, they just, it takes longer to see uh, that situation. Um, during the Great Plague of London, uh, they, uh, they took the precautionary action of killing all of the cats, the religious people of the day felt cats were superstitious. They were tied to witches. Um, and so as the bubonic plague was being spread uh, through the expansion of the rat population, uh, they went and killed all the cats as a precautionary measure. Indeed, in 1665, the Common Council of the City of London decreed that over 200,000 cats need to be killed. As a result, rats and mice spread the bubonic plague even more liberally than they previously had. 
Unfortunately, the UK has also resisted some of the other scientific urges of legislating based on precaution. During England's Victorian age, railways were under fire for causing railway madness. Edwin Fuller Torrey and Judy Miller wrote in The Invisible Plague, The Rise of Mental Illness from 1750 to the Present, trains were believed to, quote, injure the brain. Unlike the clean living movement in the United States, which purported the idea that tea would mentally injure women, the railway madness story was backed up by anecdotal evidence. During the 1860s, a large amount of news stories emerged, telling stories of railway passengers losing their minds during train trips, tales of passengers stripping naked and leaning out the windows, attacking others with a variety of weapons, including knives, all while calming down after the train had come to a stop. All this inspired fear in the regular uses of this means of transportation. The precautionary measure would have been to ban all trains until we have more certainty. The fact that this would have thrown the economy into disarray, cost millions of jobs and certainly lives in the process, can always be drowned by the argument, think of the poor people hurt by trains now. The Germans have a word for this type of argument, Totschlagargument, thought-terminating cliché. Ending an argument with a cliché rather than a rational point. The very crude and unthoughtful application of precaution isn't just a method of centuries past. It's just as popular, if not even more popular, than ever. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. You can stigmatize everything with precaution. A new social media, vaping, a new tech gadget, new medicine, and yes, also people. The difficulty is that precaution is becoming stronger than even the greatest benefits. What I found perhaps the most ridiculous episode of precaution was during the height of COVID. One of the first vaccines we had out was AstraZeneca. And there was, of course, this... You know, there are any vaccine is going to have at times an, a one or two negative effects per million. And it seemed that people were reporting blood clots, not higher than the average rate of blood clots that were being reported, but it caused people to go into a bit of a, of a, a tizzy. And several um, European commissioners, in particular the commissioner for, uh, for business, Giantolini, uh, suggested that we will not sell AstraZeneca until the precautionary principle has proven that it is safe. Well, nothing is safe. It should, he should have used the word safer. Safer than getting COVID, I think, is probably the best way to look at that. Uh, well, where is AstraZeneca today on their vaccine? It's, it's, it's nowhere because people just, it, it had the black stain of precaution on it. And even if it was proven to be nonsense, um, it, it, you got to realize this is at a time when we didn't have uh, ample numbers of vaccines out on the market. And uh, it was uh, quite clearly um, a, a crisis in risk management at this point. Precaution is good. Too much precaution is a risk in itself. This shows where the concept of precaution and risk management runs into problems with the way we do politics. It requires nuance. Nuance is something we are genuinely, in short, short supply of. Act 2. Lawyer up. Court. We love to hate it, especially when we have to go there. 
Adjudicating the law is an integral part of our system of government. Equality before the law, the idea that we're all treated fairly in front of a judge and jury, and to the extent possible, justice is served. What happens in the courtroom gathers attention to an equal extent to what happens in politics. We're both afraid of and fascinated by courtrooms, which is probably why it's so common in movies. Defense counsel will address the witness as colonel or sir. I don't know what the hell kind of unit you're running here. And the witness will address this court as judge or your honor. I'm quite certain I've earned it. Too busy treating the law like it's a One fucking assembly line. One you more time. Any idea what justice you is? Are now what, in whatever happened to right and of wrong? Court. Christ, whatever happened to right and wrong? Whatever happened to the people? And in daytime courtroom TV shows, particularly in the United States. I don't want your nose to get long. I want you to tell me how it's an accident that stones that you were rolling on the ground hit somebody's car. Times like this. I wish I were back in criminal court, because I would launch you so far into orbit, you'd never touch the ground again. You don't go through a year of holidays with a man who has two minor boys that you have never seen and come into court and tell me you didn't know he wasn't a good father. The United States is an interesting case, because not just are people in the US and around it fascinated by what happens in American courtrooms, Americans have also taken it upon themselves to become what is probably the most litigious country on earth. Americans like to sue, and not just between individuals. They also like to get together to sue big companies. A federal court has ordered tech giant Apple to pay up to a half a billion dollars to their former customers as part of a class action lawsuit. You're a Verizon wireless customer. You may be eligible for a $100 payment thanks to the company settling a class action lawsuit. If you've eaten at Chick-fil-A, you could be eligible for a refund. A class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of customers. Accused of hooking an entire generation of young people on vaping, industry giant Juul today agreed to a $462 million settlement. Big companies are being sued, sometimes for good reasons, but sometimes also to just get big settlements from them. For the audience that doesn't know, settlements often come in monetary amounts that companies pay the plaintiffs so that the court does not have to go on. That does not mean the company is guilty, but that it's settled an amount to end proceedings, often because court cases that take years might either get them more expensive in legal costs or because the ongoing news about the trial will damage their reputation. But why is the United States so judicially hostile? And what incentives are given to law firms to continue doing these lawsuits? We needed to talk to an expert. Uh, my name is Walter Olson. I'm currently a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, I have written several books about the American legal system, uh, as well as doing a long-running weblog, uh, now sadly defunct, but which went on for a couple of decades, and which looked at uh, both serious and somewhat funny or crazy aspects of the American legal system. The blog is called Overlawyered. It's still available online and provides an avalanche of curious legal cases in the United States. Walter Olson's book, The Litigation Explosion, led the Washington Post to dub him, quote, an intellectual guru of tort reform, end of quote. He's advised politicians, and he was associated with the Manhattan Institute and the American Enterprise Institute. And he's even appeared on Oprah. Olson is not a lawyer himself, but he has amassed knowledge about the functioning of the American legal system that far surpasses that of most lawyers. Across the world, people hear stories of, of the American legal system that, some, that to us seem very extravagant. I mean, the, there's the famous case of the, the lady who burned herself with, with coffee uh, and then and then and reached quite a large settlement. There, there's, there's always the story of these class action lawsuits where people get together and sue 
large corporations, uh, sometimes on good grounds, but sometimes it was very spurious grounds. Um, and I think one of the questions that immediately pops into my head is like, why is this so prevalent in, in the US? What makes the American legal system so open to these type of cases where you hear the news billion dollar settlement by large corporation in, in a consumer goods case? In, in, in its structure, why does it do that? There are many reasons, and they all kind of flow together and reinforce each other in many ways. And the the tendency of America to have much more litigation was noticed, actually, de Tocqueville noticed it uh, in the early American Republic that lawyers and litigation were already much more prevalent than in other countries he had been in. But certainly by, let's say, the 1920s or 1930s, it was already a conventional wisdom that America was more litigious than Europe or than Canada, a country that in many ways otherwise resembles us. And uh, so by that point, you already had a number of the distinctive features of the American system in place. One of them is that the role of lawyers was different. In America, lawyers were much more likely to see themselves as uh, little independent business people who might be able to make money if they could stir up litigation. Now, stirring up litigation was considered a major ethical <laughs> offense in most of the other legal systems around the world. But in the United States, it was much more tolerated and uh, winked at or, or even sometimes legal uh, for lawyers to drum up their own business that way and for them to run it uh, as a kind of fee generator. Um, the idea nearly everywhere else and the idea among some Americans is that the client needed to be in the driver's seat and that any litigation was supposed to go on uh, at the instigation of the client and for the client's benefit and the lawyer was just kind of a driver like you might hire a taxi driver. Uh, and in America, that kind of got flipped. And, and we'll get later to how in class actions, uh, it's the client who's along for the ride, and it's the lawyer who's definitely the driver. But uh, so you had that already pretty clear by the 1920s, and connected with that, pretty closely connected, was uh, what the what is called in Britain no win, no fee. And that's the idea. Uh, you know, most of the systems around the world, one way or another, um, after litigation reaches some sort of judgment, uh, then they look at who won and who lost, and sometimes it's a split decision. And they say, uh, look, uh, you know, you lost everything you argued, got knocked down uh, or, or uh, refuted. Um, you should be paying not only your own lawyer, of course, but you should also be contributing to your opponent who you put through all this. And this, of course, went both ways. It went if the plaintiff won and the defendant had been dragging its heels and unreasonably resisting. And it, it, it applied if the defendant won and, and it turned out had not committed any legal offense, then the plaintiff might have to pay. Now, obviously, that's a powerful incentive, um, particularly if you levy it against the client, uh, but also, of course, if the lawyer is potentially at risk for some of it. And in America, for historical reasons that I could go into, but we probably don't want to spend the three minutes on it. Uh, in America, we moved away from that system to um, uh, each side pays its own costs, no matter who wins. And 
uh, right from there, you had some encouragement to litigation because, of course, the uh, one big disincentive for dragging a case out from either side, either from uh, concocting a case that you really knew wasn't going to win as a plaintiff or from unreasonably resisting a claim that you really knew you should pay as a defendant, both of those were kind of nudged and incentivized. Hey, hey you know, at least you're not going to have to pay the other side's fees. Um, so that that was an encouragement to litigation from an early point. And maybe I'm being hyperbolic here, but it seems like, the, so the European legal system strikes me as the judge looking at what is reasonable. There's a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of justifications by judges in their writing will be, uh, you weren't, you weren't attempting to be a reasonable actor in this situation. While in the US, it appears that unless it's written on the description of the microwave that you shouldn't microwave your cat, uh, uh, it, it does. It does uh, then lead the company to some responsibility because it didn't tell you you shouldn't have microwave your cat. It will hurt your cat. Well, I want to unpack. There's several issues going on there, rather than one issue. Uh, and and let me uh, uh, try to separate them. Uh, one of them, uh, you started right off with uh, the judge in Europe. Now in America, of course, we have the so-called adversarial system, typical of the English-speaking countries. And I want to get back to that in a minute because juries play a big, bigger role in the U.S. Uh, and uh, judges don't have as much ability to manage cases as they would in Europe. So that's an issue. Let me set it aside for now. Um, and then you also touched on something that is a, a big phenomenon of the American system, which is uh, the whole theory of failure to warn, uh, the uh, set of doctrines saying that even though uh, there was no way to make the pond any safer to dive into, even though there was no way to make uh, the sport any safer than we made it, uh, you should have warned. I would never have gone skiing in the first place if I had been told that skiing could result in uh, terrible physical injuries. Uh, and and people do often win and win these huge awards on failure to warn, even when nothing negligent was done in the activity itself. All proper care was taken in the actual activity, but the argument was you should have warned me it was a risky activity, and so I win. Now, that's, again, a, one of these special American things that grew up into much greater flowering in, in our system. Uh, but I want to uh, I want to get finally to the, the actual question you asked, uh, which is, is there a big difference between Europeans believing in reasonableness in a standard and Americans not? And I will say that is more complicated because there are a bunch of areas of American law where it turns out that they do apply a reasonableness test. Not all of them. Sometimes you have so-called strict liability, and then it doesn't matter who acted reasonably. You still pay if the injury took place. But in a lot of other instances, uh, they will apply... Uh, the, uh, what's called a reasonable person test or a reasonable consumer test or a reasonable consumer expectation. So it comes in. It doesn't, in my view, often succeed at restoring rationality to it if enough of the other rules are unreasonable. But, but again, it's not as if we have just decided to ignore reasonableness. Let's move to these class action lawsuits. Um, the European listeners might know this under the name collective redress, which is something that the European Union tries to implement because there is no no real like Europe-wide system for this. Uh, for, for the listeners who might be unfamiliar with it, can, can you explain what is a class action lawsuit? How does one join one or start one? Class action lawsuits purport to represent, I say purport because it can be something of a legal fiction, um, all the 
as clients, all the people who fell into a particular category, all the people who bought a particular product and might have overpaid or might have not bought it if they had known that the medicine had a side effect. And the um, uh, so you can have uh, a vast class and the lawyers themselves really have no idea who all the clients are. Sometimes there are rules saying that they have to do their best endeavor to find out a product list and to mail a postcard to everyone who bought the product four years ago and see how many postcards come back. You know, like 1% would be a good show about that. Other times they don't even know the names of the people who bought the product. And they, um, uh, and the argument then is, well, let us sue. And after we get our large settlement, we will run newspaper advertisements or social media advertisements saying, did you buy this product five years ago? Um, because more time has gone by. Uh, you know, uh, send us in a, uh, an affidavit, a, a legal swearing that you were a, a customer of this five years ago, and we'll send you a check from our settlement fund. Um, you can see already that you are beginning to get into questions of uh, unproven claims and of opportunistic pseudo-membership in classes. And that can be a significant uh, practical problem for class actions that wander away from the individual context. The original context for class actions, and you can kind of see the logic at the time. I, I cite the 1920s when things were beginning to get going. Class actions were largely limited to uh, securities or shareholder litigation and a few contractual situations where uh, everyone who owned stock in some crooked company had lost out when the company had cooked the books or whatever. And they all had exactly the same kind of claim because if shareholder A had been injured with his hundred shares, then shareholder B had also been injured with her thousand shares. They'd been injured in the same way. And you can apply mathematics to determine that B's recovery should be 10 times as big as A's recovery, however big the pot is. So it kind of works uh, in those circumstances because you know uh, who the people are. You can actually name all the class members. Uh, once you've calculated damages, which may be a hard part, but you know how to divide it at that point. Um, and and it's easy to notify typically and all the rest of it. So, uh, so it was introduced in those circumstances in which you could see where it might be a real advance logistically over requiring everyone to file their own individual suit. Now, there had always been ways for people to file their own individual suits and then agglomerate them together as, you know, we 12 people have sued, but we'd like to make it all one suit. And separately, there are reasons to do that. That's sometimes called uh, uh, by different names, but it, it uh, and it's generally seen as um, posing fewer problems, although it still does pose some problems uh, to fairness and, uh, and, and manageability. But so starting in the 1960s, they said, uh, no, 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 that, you know, clearly there's an access to justice problem. We have reason to believe that uh, there is overpricing of various things. There are, uh, is uh, false advertising of other things. Uh, there are refunds that should be issued uh, over malfunctioning products that the companies never send out. Uh, we need uh, uh, collective redress, as it's called in Europe. We need better legal mechanisms. And it was kind of known, uh, even in the 1960s, that you weren't going to uh, stimulate genuine consumers stepping forward. Uh, you know, people have not enough hours in the day to step forward and say, by the way, I bought uh, a product that cost $8 and I might deserve a 50 cent refund uh, for overpricing or whatever. They, uh, but it, it was 
sort of known and recognized that lawyers would be stepping forward saying, uh, hey, I've identified a class and the, the next procedural step, which is often rather comic, is for them to identify a member of the class either by advertising or by keeping, I call them pet clients. The, the law firm will have you know, 30 or 50 people uh, who all save their receipts. Uh, and when the uh, email comes out from the, the law firm saying, we're now looking at an action against such and such a company, did anyone buy a car of a particular make or did anyone take out a mortgage from a particular company or whatever. And, uh, and were necessary, you know, that in social media, you know, they, they trade around anyway. So they find their client. Uh, and sometimes it's the same client who's been in 50 of their previous cases. You, you think of these as the unluckiest people alive because you know, they, they, they were victimized in all these transactions for all these different types of lines of business. Uh, and it's the same person. The judges even wind up sometimes getting to know those plaintiffs very well. But so, so, you know, legal fiction comes into this in a number of ways. In class action lawsuits, in many cases, the real winners are not the consumers, but the law firms. Now, how does this work? Let's say I'm a law firm that opened a class action lawsuit against a big corporation. I'm adding a very large amount of people to the lawsuit so that the company will settle, because if they lose in court, the amount they'd have to pay for each consumer would bankrupt the company. I end up with a settlement fund of a couple million dollars, which I now can distribute to consumers. But... The harder I make it to distribute that money, the more consumers will drop out. Would you fill out paperwork that will take you an hour just to receive $2? Probably not. When thousands of $2 consumers drop out, I, the law firm, award some of my main clients a lot of money, and the rest I pocket for my legal fees. So when you read X amount of millions of dollars awarded, chances are most of that went to the law firm, not the tens of thousands of consumers you were part of the class. This is why many law firms do not set up automatic payment. Walter Olson says that some judges have pushed against this practice by asking law firms to prove that they are paying money out to consumers. Yet it has not made a dent in the avalanche of lawsuits that exist. So there's an enormous pool of settlement money and being able to get the judge to um, reconsider even a few million of it uh, is um, uh, reason enough for a large fee if you've brought a good objection, but it's also a reason to bring the objection and then go into your own negotiating room, now with three parties in it instead of two, the objector, the class action lawyer, and the original company, and say, you know, uh, my concerns about these things could be put to rest, and my expert could be paid if you would just send me $2 million of your 75 million dollar fee. And that goes on too. And you get no sunlight if that's how it ends, uh, because the judge sometimes isn't even really aware. I, so I'm sorry, I'm leading you as, as if through circles of hell, uh, through, through the, all the different ways in which our system fails to serve the people who the areas of law are, um, you know, by all agreement, set up to serve the consumer. It serves the lawyers instead often. And then there are the juries. In the United States, if your class action lawsuit is that a chemical used in agriculture, for instance, causes cancer, you do not need to convince the judge, but the jury. That can cause quite some divergence on who will conclude what. 
imagine if a scientific proposition does substance X cause disease Y, imagine if that's brought to 20 different American juries. Well, each one is a new authority. And so you wind up with uh, the not really believable proposition that a particular contraceptive or a particular vaccine formulation um, either does or does not cause birth defects. Uh, you know, three juries believe that it does and 17 juries believe that it does not. Company is out of business because three juries was enough to, uh, you know, <laughs> drive the company out of business. Olson says that following a Supreme Court ruling, judges have been gatekeeping the system more, firing higher levels of expertise from scientists who testify in court, but that still, it is possible for a company to be dragged through a court system by law firms from something that we know is scientifically not of concern. You sued Monsanto. As a voter, if my vote's up for grabs and I hear, oh, Bobby Kennedy, did you know he, he sued Monsanto? He's the guy who went after that company with the fucking Roundup and the oh, whatever that shit is. That'd be like, yes. Here, Bill Maher is interviewing Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is a trial lawyer, environmentalist, conspiracy theorist, and famously the nephew of President John F. Kennedy. He has sued Monsanto, which is now owned by the company Bayer, on behalf of a client who claimed that the herbicide glyphosate gave him non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They were awarded $289 million in settlement. Here he is on the Joe Rogan podcast. When we sued Monsanto, there's a... there's a... Uh, there's many, many diseases that are linked to glyphosate exposure, uh, including um, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver cancers are very, very closely linked. Um, a lot of kidney diseases and then severe damage to the microbiome. Now, none of these things are true. And coming from the man who thinks Wi-Fi causes cancer and vaccines cause autism, that's not particularly surprising. Going through the evidence would fill a whole podcast series of its own. But what's important to note here is that Robert Kennedy does not have to prove the claim he's making. All he has to do is convince the court. Imagine the parallel world in which his name was Robert F. Snicklethwaite, and uh, he did not come from the family he does. And I am sorry to, if this sounds harsh, but no one would pay the least bit of attention to him. Um, but because he is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he can get headlines in any medium-sized city that he chooses to fly into. He, maybe he can't flying into New York and doing that, but he, uh, any medium-sized American city, uh, he can make himself the subject of, of an article. And the law firms that he has been associated with over the years include uh, mass toxic tort law firms, which are at any given time handling a portfolio of uh, toxic tort cases around the country, very often with what the lawyers call causation problems. That is, there was some spillage of something, but it's not at all clear that people who lived half a mile away and report a wide variety of symptoms from coughs to heart murmurs to cancer to uh, uh, you know the uh, infertility. You know, it's it's often not at all clear that uh, uh, these would be entertained as strong uh, uh, causation claims, even if they worked in the factory where there was a spill, and sometimes they live half a mile away. Um, so you've got this causation hurdle, which is very often the biggest hurdle for a law firm that would like to turn a bunch of not very valuable cases into one that has a few you know, significant payoffs in it. What is the difference? Well, the difference is someone flies into your city, uh, says, you know, that there's a toxic tort about this former military base, you know, where chemicals leaked into the ground or whatever the issue is. And 
um, several things happen. Uh, the if the lawsuit is in that venue, as it will often be, uh, jurors hear about it. Uh, potential clients uh, and people who are willing to say, "Hey, you know, uh, my aunt lived there, and my aunt got cancer. Um, you know, please include her in your dossier of evidence." So the case becomes quote stronger unquote in that more people report diseases. Uh, it becomes stronger with a local jury. It becomes a much bigger publicity headache for the defendant company. And often it turns into a valuable settlement. And the funny thing is that the uh, national celebrity who flew in and caused all this may be an employee of your law firm who may have a contingency interest in the size of the settlement. Now, I wish reporters asked more questions sometimes of some of these celebrities about, are you being compensated? Do you have any financial relationship with a law firm that is pressing claims on this toxic thing? I think usually, you know, that if asked, they will answer. They'll probably have an answer that makes it sound as innocuous as possible. But I don't think they'll, you know, they'll answer wrongly. But so often the question doesn't even get asked. Why does this matter? This is not the law police podcast. So why are we even interested in the subject? Because what happens in many of these prohibitionist movements is that they know that there is no way they can convince the Houses of Parliament or Congress to vote a law through to ban something. But what they can do is exhaust the companies producing these goods in court until they're either bankrupt or their business model is not viable anymore. It can happen to a company that makes e-cigarettes. It can happen to a production company that makes rap music. It can happen to a video game producer. And, which is the topic for Act 3, it can happen with the help of international institutions. Act 3. Conflicts of interest. It is the 8th of November, 1963, and French President Charles de Gaulle opens the Le Mans newspaper on his desk. In it, an article echoing the call of 13 public intellectuals titled A Wish That Must Be Heard, signed by Dr. Escoffier Lambiot recalling that cancer and cardiovascular disease were the cause of 70% of deaths in France and that the cancer mortality had risen significantly between 1950 and 1960. Ms. Escoffier Lambiot hoped that such a profoundly humanitarian wish would be heard and fulfilled, and it did. Charles de Gaulle wanted to take on the challenge of cancer and reached out to the director of the relatively new World Health Organization to create a separate institution within the WHO to investigate the causes of cancer. WHO loved the Gaulle's idea, and by a vote of the World Health Assembly, it created in 1965 the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC. As was expected, a French president wasn't going to let this agency be resident in Geneva, Switzerland. In 1966, IARC opened its doors in Lyon, France. So, naturally, I had to go to Lyon. Good excuse to go to France anyway. Lyon is France's second biggest city, and if you ask me, it is the better Paris. The sun shines more, there's less stress, better food, friendlier people. The streets are bustling with people, construction and renovations mark the city. It's cleaning up its act. Part of the Olympic Games this year will take place in Lyon, and it wants to make sure it looks its best. Far less noisy, in Lyon's 7th district, the streets are wider. 
fewer residential buildings, but instead more large office buildings with white-collar workers shoveling in and out. In the middle, the brand new headquarters of the International Agency for Research on Cancer. The flags haven't even been raised yet. Excusez-moi, madame. Je demande juste aux gens, est-ce que vous savez ce qu'est ce bâtiment-là C'est le centre pour la recherche pour le cancer, je crois. Oui, c'est pour le, le cancer, non C'est un nouveau laboratoire du coup pour le cancer Je ne sais pas du tout, non. non. C'est le truc de le cancer, contre le cancer. Le... Non, je ne suis pas d'ici, mais je, je l'ai vu, je l'ai lu, je ne sais plus. C'est un mixed bag on the people knowing what happens in the building. But most French people would be hard-pressed to know what the agency actually does. I meet a person working for IARC outside the building. I won't disclose what they do to keep them out of trouble, who is vaping. Surely they were unaware that IARC, just like the World Health Organization, believes that the availability of e-cigarettes is dangerous. Back to risk communications expert David Zarek. There is one particular little division, which you can't even find on their homepage. You have to go into their documents to find it, called the monograph section, uh, which is um, about 15 people are tied to that, plus they have other responsibilities. But it's an administrative body that will release two to three monographs a year, which looks at particular substances to determine whether they're uh, carcinogenic. They're using a hazard-based approach. So they're not looking at the level of exposure. Remember, risk equals hazard times exposure. But just to see whether something is or is not carcinogenic. Okay, I'll have to stop you right here, because this is important. What David Zarek mentions in this clip is that IARC takes a hazard-based approach to risk assessment. Let's unpack that. In the English language, hazard and risk are used interchangeably. Something is a hazard, something is a risk. When you say it in daily conversation, you wouldn't know that scientifically, these mean very different things. Hazard and risk mark the difference between possibility and probability. Let's illustrate this with an example provided by the European Food Safety Authority. The sun. The sun is a hazard because it has the possibility of causing skin cancer. This is why it's recommended that when you go to the beach, you wear sunscreen. When you have sunscreen on, the sun is a hazard, but not a risk. Essentially, what you are doing with sunscreen is managing risks. In this case, getting rid of it. Not clear? Let's try a different one. When there is a thunderstorm outside, there will be lightning. If you don't leave the house, lightning is a hazard, but not a risk, because you remove yourself from the possibility of being struck by lightning. The equation is thus risk equals hazard times exposure. How exposed you are to hazard answers the question of whether it is risky. A few years ago, an environmental organization in Munich, Germany, said that it found glyphosate residues in beer, and that thus it is risky to drink beer and that ultimately glyphosate needs to be outlawed. A German government agency in charge of risk assessments answered their statements by saying, yes, there is glyphosate residue in beer, but in order for you to be affected by the glyphosate residues, you would need to drink a thousand liters of beer per day. I'd also say that if you drink a thousand liters of beer per day, it's really not the glyphosate that you should be afraid of. The IARC monograph program uses a hazard-based approach, which is why it states that a lot of things cause cancer. It makes these lists of carcinogens, including categories for carcinogenic, possibly carcinogenic, 
and probably carcinogenic. In those lists, you can find things such as dry cleaning, aloe vera, Asian pickled vegetables, working night shifts, glyphosate, aspartame, the artificial sweetener in Diet Coke, burnt toast or alcohol. The problem with this list is that in the media, the fact that these are hazards, not risks, and that it depends on the dosage, is never mentioned. This morning, the World Health Organization is out with what appears to be a troubling headline about the artificial sweetener aspartame. It's commonly found in diet sodas, sugar-free gum, and tabletop sweeteners. The WHO's International Agency for Research on Cancer is now classifying aspartame as a carcinogen, meaning it's capable of causing cancer, specifically liver cancer. The World Health Organization says processed meat is carcinogenic to humans, putting sausages in the same category as asbestos and cigarettes. It declared red meat, such as beef, lamb and pork, as slightly less dangerous, but probably in the same cancer-causing risk group. For David Zarek, the reason why IARC follows this counterintuitive approach to risk communication is because it has been captured by what he calls activist scientists. They've been using IARC for some of their more politically driven scientific studies. Most famous, I think, is... Uh, that IARC uh, determined that the herbicide glyphosate is carcinogenic when no other agency before and after has. Uh, they most recently locked horns with the, an agency tied to the WHO and the FAO called JECFA on aspartame, uh, where IARC said that aspartame was carcinogenic and the WHO FAO body, which had the jurisdiction to, to do this uh, research, that it was not. One was taking a risk approach, the other was taking a hazard-based approach. Why is there this difference? First of all, IARC uses a hazard-based approach, which doesn't look at the exposure. So sure, it can give you cancer if you eat pesticide residues on your cereal, um, you eat about 4,000 boxes a day, you could get to the level where you might, might is even a debatable term, put yourself at risk of a cancer. Or I believe what aspartame you'd have to drink, um, I believe 16 bottles of Coke a day, every day for the rest of your life to get to a level of exposure where once again, you might uh, develop a cancer. So that's a hazard-based approach. You're not looking at the exposures, you're simply saying this could be uh, cancer. Now, what made IARC rather insidious is that the scientists have a rather interesting philosophy. Well, it's basically called adversarial regulation. A lot of these are regulatory scientists who felt that the regulate the risk management process is broken. Uh, you know, every time they try to get a substance banned or something, industry lobbyists come in and change the rules of the game. So they have given up on the process and find it much more effective to prove that something is carcinogenic and then sue the hell out of the company until they either you know, go out of business or change their ways. Uh, this is what I call the tobacconization process. Um, in fact, there's a document that they had a, a workshop in La Jolla in California in 2012, where they looked at the fact that the success against tobacco was not 
because of the science was not because of the policymakers. It was because of the overwhelming litigation force that made the tobacco industry become uh, sort of afraid for its future. The idea was quite simple. You could overwhelm a company like Monsanto with mass tort litigations and they would change. And I think that's one of the rather interesting points that all the scientists who went to the uh, IARC monograph, the American scientists, were all serving as litigation consultants for the law firm suing Monsanto, earning in, you know, at, fi- at, a, at a fee of $500 an hour. Many of them are millionaires today. In October 2017, news agency Reuters ran a story that showed that IARC in its review of whether glyphosate is carcinogenic, had edited out all the findings that showed it wasn't. IARC was, in fact, being selective about which evidence it was considering. Reuters found 10 instances of that happening, but IARC declined to comment. In fact, since I, of course, asked, IARC was also not available to appear on this podcast either. Is it possible that scientists at IARC were working with law firms in the United States so that glyphosate first was declared probably carcinogenic, and that these law firms could then use that assessment to convince juries in court that it had caused cancer. It's hard to know, says Zarek. One of the difficulties, of course, is that uh, there was a a freedom of information request from IARC, from the American members who were all, you know, busily working with the law firms, uh, to see their documents. And uh, IARC forbade any transparency and did not allow them to release any of the email discussions. Uh, there was one particular scientist. I'm, I'm, I understand he doesn't like me because uh, there was 30 seconds of him ranting against me in a film recently. But um, this one particular scientist, Chris Portier, uh, was actually meeting with law firms before going to IARC. And he signed on a contract nine days after IARC uh, pronounced um, glyphosate as carcinogenic. These law firms were the lead firms in suing. And uh, what Chris would say, I've done nothing wrong. And the law firms, in fact, in this contract said he was not allowed to speak about the details. So under... uh, you're asking whether tort law firms in the United States are legal. Um, they're above the law. They pay judges um, to, in their re-election campaigns. Uh, the, all, the money is all dark. Um, there's uh, because of uh, client attorney privilege. There's no there's there's no way you can find out unless law firms start fighting among themselves about the type of money that's involved. They the money that's used, they have their own banking, shadow banking system, which is essentially a Ponzi scheme, uh, where most, I think they're, you know, these litigation finance firms charge 20% interest uh, when settlements uh, come out in order that the law firms can continue to pay off. Not just scientists, they're paying off NGOs as well. They're paying filmmakers to make films, uh, the film Into the Weeds was uh, fully financed by tort law firms in the U.S., but through these rather dark donor-advised funds, uh, which means you can't find any of that money. In a paid newspaper ad in the United States, after the IARC assessment, it reads, quote, Attention, herbicide applicators and farm workers. 
Have you been diagnosed with cancer after being exposed to the weed killer Roundup? If so, the law firm of Weitz and Luxembourg PC is interested in speaking with you immediately, as you may be eligible for financial compensation. The World Health Organization has recently acknowledged that glyphosate, the key ingredient of the herbicide Roundup, has the potential to cause cancer in humans. End of quote. And with this, the lawyers took Monsanto, now Bayer, to court. It's not at all about the evidence. It's not, I mean, juries are not scientists. They're not going to be able to look at evidence and manage it. They get somebody coming in, you hear the word WHO and somebody looks nice and he, he can say complete nonsense, but the jury will believe it. Uh, and I think that the difficulty here is it's how, how, how can a jury decide that this is worth $1.2 billion in settlement? Well, it's moral outrage. And that's why the NGOs are paid heavily to campaign. I mean, all of the campaigns against Monsanto in the years leading up to this were all planned. And it was all planned to create this. Uh, in fact, it was, even, it was even said at this La Jolla uh, workshop that you need to create that outrage within the population uh, in order to increase the jury decisions. But most cases will never get to jury. That, that's the whole point. This is, this is a, once again, legitimized extortion racket. Where does this leave us? We're not sure. We know that some things cause cancer and others don't. But where the needle lands on us saying that something causes cancer does not just involve a wide public health debate. It is also worth billions of dollars. There's an incentive structure that creates really, really bad incentives. Banning products indirectly through the courts, funneling money into public advocacy that enriches some at the expense of everyone else, it is a real concern here. International institutions losing their credibility. The science of it all, it's left hanging. That's possibly the biggest loss of all. Police is a Consumer Choice Center original podcast. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Bill Wirtz, contributing research by Elizabeth Hicks and Emil Panjau, editing by Yala Saskia and myself. You can read David Zaris extensive work on IAC on his blog, risk-monger.com, titled Greed and Lies and Glyphosate, The Portier Papers. Walter Olson's many books are available on Amazon. Thank you for those who support our work with a donation, consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate. The last episode of this season will be out next week on Wednesday. Until then, stay clear of the fun police. Mm-hmm.